Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, could we see UK interest rates rise above 0.5% this week? As Greece prepares to exit its bailout, what are the lessons to be learned? Over 20% of people are unemployed. Over 40% of young people are out of work. And wages are being slashed if you happen to be lucky enough to have a job. And why executives should consider closing the door on open plan offices. You are just a disposable cog in the machine. And you don't even know when you come in whether you're going to get a desk or not. First, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee is meeting on Thursday and it's expected to raise interest rates. Callum Williams is our Britain economics correspondent. Callum, there's a lot of talk about them raising rates. This really looks like it might be on the cards for the first time since November, this is, and that's only the second time since the crisis hit. Exactly. In a way, it's the first kind of real time since the crisis because what happened in November 2017 was the Bank of England reversed the cut that they had implemented after the the Brexit referendum when they thought the economy was going to go off a cliff. The economy didn't go off a cliff, so the Bank of England has reversed that cut. And now they're likely to raise rates from 0.5% to 0.75%. Is that a good idea? Well, we think it's not. The Bank of England essentially says that the economy is so weak that the economy can only grow quite slowly before inflation starts to go above the Bank of England's 2% target. That's basically because productivity growth is so weak. And so what we're seeing at the moment is GDP growth of around 1.6%. So really not very fast at all by historical standards. But the Bank of England deems that fast enough to start to sort of push inflation through the economy. And so that's really the rationale for, for raising rates. That's really an unpleasant place to be in where such low growth is still inflationary. The thing is, though, is that we would counter with a few arguments. First, I think there is an argument that they're being a bit too pessimistic on on productivity growth. So there's been some interesting kind of research coming out of the Bank of England in the past few months, which has suggested that finally businesses are starting to invest in in robots and in automation and in capital of, of all sorts. And that will help to bring productivity growth up. And the second thing, and this is in a way a stronger argument, is that there's actually very little evidence that inflation is building in the economy. So at the moment, it is true that inflation is slightly above the Bank of England's 2% target, but that's really to do with the depreciation of the pound, which took place after the Brexit referendum. If you look at the kind of inflation that's generated domestically, there's really no evidence of of that happening. In fact, the opposite is happening. When you say the opposite is happening, what you're saying really is the domestic demand is really very weak. It is very weak. And so there's lots of puzzles. So, for instance, unemployment at the moment is very, very low. It's around 4%, which is you know the lowest in like 40, 40 odd years. But wage growth is really, really pathetic. I mean, wages basically are, are just about rising in, in real terms. And then if you look at, say, what's happening in the service sector, which tends to be more reflective of the domestic economy, because services, you know, like restaurants and all that sort of stuff can't really be traded internationally. Service sector inflation is, is way lower than the historical average and has actually been falling. So there's really no strong case for there being a sort of generation of domestic inflation and that, you know, there's no sense that it's rising, certainly. And this could choke off whatever strength there is in the economy then. That's, yeah. that's the risk. That is the risk. When the bank raised rates in November, although these things are quite hard to be sure about, there is some evidence that households did react quite quite badly to that because household debt is high and, and so on. And it, it may be no coincidence that 
the bank raised in November. And then in the first quarter of 2018, we saw our slowest growth in, in like five years. So, you know, we do need to be careful about these things, especially with Brexit. We managed to get through nearly all of that without saying especially Brexit. Uh, I mean, is there not a case for even being looser in the run up to what is an enormously uncertain policy period? Well, our recommendation would just be to hold off because there's already loads of uncertainty. And pr- we're probably at a stage now where the uncertainty over the UK's Brexit position is, is greater than ever. So we sort of think, do you need to shake up monetary policy at the same time? Probably not. Well, let's see what they actually decide on the day. Thanks, Callum. Thanks. Next, after eight years of financial bailouts, Greece is on track to exit its third rescue package in August. It has set tough fiscal targets by its creditors and managed to meet them by raising already high taxes to crippling levels. Austerity hit Greece hard. Speaking earlier this year, George Papandreou, who was Prime Minister during the first bailout, described the punishment that Greece had taken in the past eight years. The costs on the Greek economy and the Greek people has been brutal, actually, a 25% of GDP loss. High unemployment, huge taxes, which um, are really burdening uh, our, our families. What now for the country? And what can we learn from Greece's crisis? Ratchana Shanbog is The Economist's Europe economics correspondent, and she's been to Greece to find out more. Ratchana, just remind us why Greece needed these bailout packages in the first place. Well, Helen, it was a problem of government over-borrowing, really. In the run-up to the financial crisis in 2008, Greece benefited from low interest rates by virtue of being a member of the Eurozone. And um, the government spent more than it should have done. It, It was subsequently revealed that the public finance figures had been systematically misreporting the extent to which they'd been doing that. And the result was that Financial market participants and creditors were nervous about lending Greece more money. The government lost access to the markets, uh, its troubles spilled over to the banking sector, and then it had to seek bailouts from the EU and from the IMF. And those bailouts came with strings attached. And looking back over the last eight years, were the right strings attached? And how did that go? How did that conditionality go? You're right, there was very strict conditionality and really... Greece has yet to recover from from the impact of that austerity that was required. The government had to cut back on its spending. It cut back on pensions for old people. It had to increase taxes to very sort of crippling levels, as you mentioned. And the result is that GDP is about 25% lower than its pre-crisis peak in real terms. Investment is about 60% lower than its peak. And and really, even though things are starting to get better and uh, the economy is expanding rather than contracting, there are still some really tough times. But it's not like Greece is out of the woods, is it? I mean, as you say, the figures are terrible compared to where it was. It's managed to hit its primary surplus target, though, so that's why it's able to exit the package. But it hasn't done a lot of the structural reforms that it was meant to do, still a lot of tax evasion and so on. That's right. The problem with Greece, and and really, you know, this fed into its public finance crisis, was that there's a lot of tax evasion. There's very high non-compliance with tax. The tax base has also been quite small traditionally. So the result is you need high taxes charged on a, on a small group of people in order to, to balance the books. Things have improved a little bit. So there's now an independent tax collection agency. There was talk of a, a tax amnesty to try and encourage people to make, pay more tax. But what's happened in the past couple of years is that the way in which the government has met and in fact overshot its fiscal targets is by raising taxes higher. So if you earn €40,000 a year, for example, you'd be paying taxes of about 55%. 
And then on top of that, you're nas- including your national insurance contributions and so on. And the result is you're paying a 75% marginal rate on each euro that you earn. That doesn't sound sustainable. I presume people are flooding out of the country. That's the other disadvantage of being part of a monetary union, I suppose, is that it's very easy for you to move to a different country. And so somebody was telling me that thousands of of Greek doctors have left Greece to seek jobs in Germany or in Britain because that's where they can practice. That's where their, their pay is much better. And the result is that the growth potential of the Greek economy has has taken a really big hit over the past eight years. But even for those who stay, life is very difficult. Over 20% of people are unemployed. Over 40% of young people are out of work and wages are being slashed if you happen to be lucky enough to have a job. If we could go back eight years, obviously we would say to policymakers and to the Greek government that the austerity was too severe and that it would have been better to give them a bit more money to keep the economy going. What else? What other lessons would we have learned? Some of the lessons, to be fair to the Eurozone, have been learned already and they're to do with what's called the banking union reforms. So ensuring that banks within the Eurozone are all supervised to exactly the same sort of framework, which was part of the problem behind the Eurozone crisis. I think what became clear over the past eight years is that the creditors put a lot of weight on Greece achieving its fiscal targets. And what got lost, got left by the wayside, was structural reform. And really what Greece needs to do to be able to reduce its debt burden is to grow faster. And that means encouraging Greece to do things like improve its tax collection system, increase the tax base to make it a friendlier place to do business. Until Greece does more to allow businesses to invest and to attract foreign investment into the country, it growing by more than two, two and a half percent seems really difficult to imagine. Ratchana, thank you. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. And finally, to think about the pros and cons of open plan offices, I'm going to get out of the studio and take a wander around the Economist's own offices with my office mate. I'm here in our offices with our Bartleby columnist, Philip Coggan, who wrote in the current issue of The Economist about open plan offices. I'm picking him up at our shared office, in fact. Uh, Neither Phil nor I are very tidy, and I suppose we both appreciate having a separate office that we can uh, leave my gym kit and his piles of books and my flowers and so on around the place without anyone else having to complain, because we put up with each other, don't we, Phil? We do, very much so. It's a delight. I'd like to emphasise. <laughs> so we're going to have a wander around and Phil is going to tell us as we go what the research says about open plan offices, cubicles, shared spaces and how people work in those spaces together. There's a recent study by two academics at Harvard which looked into the theory behind open plan offices which stated that by bringing everybody together, they would collaborate more and you'd get a more productive workplace. So what they did was to put some equipment, some monitors on people, which measured whether they were interacting face-to-face, what their position was, and what their posture was to try and assess whether they were actually collaborating. But they found the opposite, that people were more inclined to send emails and have fewer face-to-face interactions in an open plan office. So 
So we're here now in the central core of The Economist's offices just off the Strand in London and here we do have an open plan area which is used on Thursday mornings for us to get the paper out but during the week is used by people in production, in social media and so on and I can see some big headphones on people's ears, Phil. Yes, absolutely. And that's a natural thing because if you're trying to concentrate, if you're trying to read an article or uh, read a paper or write an article uh, then somebody talking behind you like we are now of course uh, is going to distract you and so people tend to shut everybody else out bit more of a wonder and we will look at some of our breakout areas. So interestingly we're passing some of our meeting rooms and I can tell that these meetings that are going on in them are actually just two or three people who stepped away from their desk to try and get a bit of privacy for discussion. What about those sort of mixed offices where you can have some breakout areas and so on and maybe a bit of hot desking? What do we know about hot desking? Hot desking is uh, a growing trend so almost 40% of companies expect to be hot desking by 2020, um, according to a survey. And I think the problem with hot desking is the effect it has on employees and their morale. Helen has her plants, I have my books, we have pictures of our families, we like to personalise our surroundings to make it seem like a, a decent place to work. In a hot desk, you can't do that. You are just a disposable cog in a machine, and you don't even know when you come in whether you're going to get a desk or not. And that may mean that you work at home. Well, of course, that's fine. You've got all the personalised things there, but the supposed benefits of collaboration are gone if you're working at home instead of at the office. So I've always had the suspicion that these sorts of office trends, it's like high-rise. As you say, actually, in your article this week, it's really about money, isn't it? It is. You can cram more people into a space like this than you can if we all had individual offices. And back in the days, they built tower blocks. Everybody wanted a little house with a garden, they couldn't afford to build them, cram everybody in, cram everybody into the office, and it doesn't matter if you feel like a battery hen, you need the money so you turn up to work anyway. I'd like to say that the perfect office size is two people, because then you have your friend, you have your office mate, you're not lonely, but you don't have to listen to too much going on. Absolutely. And Helen puts me right quite often. (laughs) Thanks, Phil. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks at Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.